I'm looking at the true believers who are here tonight, true believers, the innermost of the innermost, because when we left, it was a sleeting over in North Fort Worth, and it's cold out there, one degree above freezing, but you made it. So I, I really believe there's an extra reward for you in heaven when we go. We're coming tonight. Um, but it's good to see all of you that made it, and please drive home carefully after we're done. I want to welcome those that are watching by uh, streaming video, no doubt, maybe a few more because you couldn't make it. Uh, we welcome you. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the Wednesday night service where we're going to be getting into Hebrews 3. How many of you read ahead? Good for you. Give yourselves a hand. There we go. That's okay. Good. You read ahead. So I hope you made some notes, uh, and you're ready to critique me. If, if you have a negative critique, keep it to yourself. Just go home and pray about it. But it is good to see you. And tonight, we're, we're dealing with the, the word again, better. Jesus is better. How many of you can say amen to that anyway? But that's the message of Hebrews, that Jesus is better in so many ways. And tonight, we're going to see he's better than Moses. And when this letter, when, when the writer of the, of the Hebrew, letter of the Hebrews uh, wrote this, he knew he was trampling on sacred ground of the Jews because they highly revere Moses, and rightly they should. But Jesus is better than Moses, and that's the message. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God that we love. Lord, we love your word. This is unlike any word, any book, anything that we could read. It is above and beyond any book in the world. It's your book, your love letter to us. It is the word of God, the very breathed out word. And Lord, we praise you and we thank you for it. And as we now look at Hebrews chapter three, build us up in the faith, help us, Lord, to grasp it and help us, Lord, to, to, for our image, our picture, our uh, concept of Jesus to rise tonight where he deserves to be in Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, better than Moses. Amen. You can be seated. God bless you. Amen. I love getting into the Word. I, I like Wednesday nights almost better than Sundays, although I do really love Sundays. But I love getting into the Word of God. How many of you love studying it? You know, a lot of churches aren't doing Wednesday nights anymore. They, they don't teach. Uh, it's just, well, they have classes, but I'm going to leave it there because I almost sound like I'm being critical. But there's a lot of churches that are not taking people through all the Scriptures and we're supposed to. We're supposed to know the whole counsel of God. Amen? The whole counsel of God. So last time we ended with the glorious news that our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, is compassionate in our struggles and faithful to fulfill every one of his good promises. How many of you are glad he's faithful? And what about compassionate when you're hurting and struggling and really going through it? The writer... Uh, to the Hebrews wants us to understand that Jesus is not hammering us when we're going through a trial. He's pulling for us, rooting for us, uh, nudging us and pushing us and prodding us and exhorting us and encouraging us to go onward, upward, and forward always. Because he's been there and he's felt our pain. He's able to empathize and help us through all of our trials. Jesus empathizes when you hurt. 
It's not just an intellectual thing. Yeah, it looks to me like they're hurting, but Jesus feels our pain. He empathizes with us because he's been there. Now, the writer of Hebrews has also spent, so far in the first two chapters, a lot of time explaining how Jesus is superior to the angels. Now, in chapter 3, we're going to see that he's also, as I've already said, superior to Moses. So let's see what he says. Verse 1, chapter 3 of Hebrews. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Now, let's just unpack this verse a little bit. Notice how Jesus is called both apostle and high priest. I don't know of any other place in the Bible there might be one. I don't know of it where Jesus is called an apostle. But here he is. He's the apostle and the high priest. Now, what is the difference? Well, as our apostle, Jesus speaks to us on behalf of God. Because all that apostle means is sent one. Somebody's sent with a message. That's all apostle means. Sometimes in our day, we've made it to be far more than it really means. But in the days of the early church, if you were an apostle, you were a sent one. You were sent to a region, sent to a city or from city to city. And they usually built churches, but they were sent ones with a message. That's it. And so they spoke to the people on behalf of God. But a high priest is different. A high priest speaks to God on behalf of the people. So we have an apostle, Jesus Christ, who speaks to us on behalf of God. And we've also got a high priest in Jesus who speaks to God on behalf of us. Amen? Amen. So the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So as high priest, Jesus is always praying for you and for me. How many of you are glad that Jesus prays for you? That's his ministry right now in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of almighty God. And what does he do? Well, part of his ongoing eternal ministry is to pray for us. And so that's his high priestly role. But he also brought to us the word of God, did he not? He came to earth and spoke to us on behalf of God. And so that's the beauty of the writer calling Jesus both our apostle and our high priest. And then verse 2, who, who, that is Jesus, is the who, Who was faithful to him, that is God, who appointed him, that is Jesus. As Moses also was faithful in all of his house. So now we're being told that as Moses was faithful, here comes the comparison. The writer is now moving in to compare Jesus with Moses, just like he compared Jesus with the angels. And so he begins by saying, Jesus was faithful to God who sent him, just like Moses was faithful in all of his house. Now, this reference to Moses is found in Numbers 12, 6 to 7. That is, this is where he gets it. It it describes Moses' faithfulness. It says that, that God said of Moses, listen to my words, talking to the people now, When there is a prophet among you, says God, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. 
I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true, my servant Moses. He's different. He is faithful in all my house. Now here he is putting Moses above the prophets. And he's saying, Moses is not like the prophets. He's a step above because he's faithful in all my house. And did he not say in another place that he talked to Moses face to face? He never did that with anybody except Christ, who was God, the son. Now, notice that it mentions a house, that Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Now, the house was God's Old Testament uh, household, the Israelites, which also included Moses' faithfulness to deliver to them all that God told him. So not only was he faithful to the people of God to shepherd them through the wilderness, but he was also faithful to bring them the word that God gave him. He faithfully delivered the word. He didn't water it down. He didn't dilute it. He didn't pollute it but he brought it straight to them, the Ten Commandments. Thus says the Lord, thou shalt not this, thou shalt not that, thou shalt not the other. He laid it out. He didn't mince words, but he faithfully delivered it. And church, I gotta tell you, we need preachers like that today who don't mince it, water it down, dilute it, political, correctize it. But we need preachers and teachers who deliver the word as it is to men as they are. Amen? Amen. So Moses was faithful to shepherd God's people, and he was also faithful to deliver the word, and then also faithful to deliver the ceremonial law that God gave him and the moral laws that God gave him and the construction of the very tabernacle of God which we're going to see the book of Hebrews gets into more and more as we move along. We're going to look at the tabernacle and see how powerful the truth is that is found in the tabernacle and how it points to the coming of Jesus. So the writer says this. Let's catch the comparison now. He says, like Moses, Jesus was faithful in all of God's house. Amen. All that God sent him to do, Jesus did. And you know what? He did it more perfectly than Moses. Because Moses struck that rock twice in anger. He blew his stack. And because he lost his temper and hit the rock twice instead of talking to it like God told him to, he was kept from the promised land. That's always bothered me. What a tragedy. He goes through 40 years of Hades with these people. And then he doesn't even get to go in because he lost his temper and did not accurately represent God. But Jesus never messed up in representing God. Never once. Jesus perfectly, flawlessly represented God. So here comes the comparison, Moses to Jesus. Jesus faithfully taught what God gave him. What did Jesus say? What I hear the Father saying, that's what I say. What the Father tells me to do, that's what I do. I don't say it if he doesn't tell me, and I don't do it if he doesn't command me to do it. Faithful in all of God's house. He was faithful in the working of the miracles, and Jesus was faithful all the way to his sacrificial death on the cross, which still to this day rocks my world if I really think about it very long, that Jesus Christ, the perfect, flawless, sinless son of the living God, went all the way to the cross. He allowed the very men that he had created 
to slap him, pluck out his beard, abuse him, mock him, ridicule him, torture him, nail him to a tree, drag him through kangaroo court, accuse him of things that were not true, and kill him on a cross. When at any time he could have said, God send your angels, I'm out of here. And he would have been gone. But he did not do it. So this was obedience that goes beyond our scope of the ability to conceive of such a thing. That that God wrapped in skin gave himself for you and me. Wow. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that tonight? Amen, amen, amen. So Jesus was, was faithful. Now, now catch this. There is a difference between Jesus and Moses, and he's about to show this. Whereas Moses was faithful in God's house, Jesus was faithful over God's house. Now look what verse 3 says. For this one, capital O, so it's talking about Jesus, this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch, here's why. Why is he worthy of more glory than Moses? Here's why. Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house itself. Jesus is greater because he is Lord over the house that Moses was faithful in. What Moses was faithful in, Jesus was Lord over. Amen? In the very next verse, we're going to see that God built the house. Jesus, as the son, was over the house. And Moses was a faithful servant in the house. So Jesus is greater than Moses and counted worthy of more glory because, listen, the the servant in the house never has greater authority or glory than the owner of the house. God gave Jesus the house. Jesus was Lord over the house. The whole uh, uh, Old Testament, we can call it the Old Testament church, Israel, going through the wilderness, going into the promised land, everything God gave them to do, the tabernacle and everything else, how to worship, how to seek God, how to pray, how to cleanse themselves, all the feasts, all the tabernacle, all of the, the different things God gave them to do and to observe annually and regularly. Jesus was over the whole thing. Moses was faithful in it, but Jesus was over it. Verse four and five, for every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all of his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. How was Moses faithful? He faithfully laid out a pattern and types and shadows of the Messiah who was to come. Now notice in verse five, the writer knows how much Moses is revered by his readers. So he's very careful to give credit where credit is due. He says, Moses indeed, everybody say indeed. So he's wanting to give credit here. Moses indeed was faithful in all that God gave him in all his house. And through his faithfulness, Moses testified of those things that would later be confirmed by Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke about this, saying these words. If you believed Moses, now I love that he said this to the Pharisees. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, 
for he wrote about me. So you see, Moses faithfully delivered the word of God right down to prophesying the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in that way, he was faithful, a faithful servant in the house of God. But now Jesus is Lord over that house. And he's Lord over the New Testament house of God, which is the church of the living God. And you are God's house now. As a matter of fact, you're the temple of God. Whereas God revealed himself in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and he revealed himself in the temple in the Old Testament, he reveals himself now, and he abides now in you and me. Amen. You are God's house. And the church collectively is the house that Jesus is over. Amen. Jesus was the fulfillment of everything Moses predicted as a prophet. The tabernacle he was instructed to build in the wilderness was a type and a shadow of Jesus' redemptive work. Everything in the tabernacle pointed to his coming ministry and sacrificial death on the cross. And we're going to be looking, like I said, at that tabernacle much more in the weeks to come. But as a prophet, Moses predicted the coming of Messiah Jesus. Look what he said in Deuteronomy 18, starting at verse 15. Moses continued, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you yourselves requested of the Lord your God when you were assembled at Mount Sinai. You said, don't let us hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore or see this blazing fire for we will die. Because when the Lord manifested himself on Mount Sinai, it was scary. There was thundering. There was lightning. A dark cloud overshadowed the mountain. Nobody wanted to draw close. God was spooky then. And so the people said, don't make us face this thunder and lightning and dark cloud. Don't don't let us face, don't make us keep on facing this. We want to know you. We want a different route to you. We want a better way to know you. And Moses said, it's coming. God heard you and it's coming. Then the Lord said to me, this is Moses talking, what they have said is right. I will raise up a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell the people everything I command him. And I will personally deal with anybody who will not listen to the messages the prophet proclaims on my behalf. I'm going to read verse 19 again because now he's talking about Jesus. I will personally deal with anyone who will not listen to the messages the prophet Jesus proclaims on my behalf. Now we're going to a whole new level. If you don't listen to what the prophet I'm going to send says... I'm personally going to deal with you. This is strong stuff, everybody. God is saying, you don't want the cloud anymore, the thunder and the lightning anymore? All right, I'm going to send you a prophet. And he's going to speak to you my words. Every word that I give him to say, he's going to say it. But you better listen. Because if you don't listen to him, I, God, will personally deal with you. Wow. Now, Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, next, the writer further distinguishes between Moses and Jesus. Now, he's making the comparison, so let's follow it now. Verse 6, 
the first half of the verse. But Christ as a son over his own house. Now Moses was the father's servant in the father's house. But Jesus is the father's son who due to his position of sonship is over the house. Amen. And whereas Moses led Israel, God's people, through the wilderness to the promised land, Jesus is over the New Testament house, the church of the living God, purchased by his shed blood. Moses never shed blood for that Old Testament uh, church, that Old Testament uh, congregation. He never did, but Jesus did. He purchased the New Testament house with his own blood, and he will lead you and me into the ultimate promised land, the home of the redeemed, heaven. So Moses was a type and a shadow, a picture, an illustration, pointing down the tunnel of time, everybody. And we see Moses delivering them from Egypt. And that was a type and a picture of how Jesus would deliver us from the world. He carried them across the Red Sea as on dry land. Jesus carried us across the sea of sin into the other side where our sin is forgiven. He carried us where we could never have carried ourselves. He carried them, Moses carried them through the wilderness, faithfully feeding them, water out of the rock, taking care of them. Not one of their sandals wore out. Uh, God cared for those people all during their time in the wilderness. And in the same way, Jesus is carrying us through the wilderness of this world. And he is watching over us and making sure that we get to the other side. And as Moses and Joshua and Caleb after him made sure that they got into the promised land, oh, folks, the day is coming when our Savior is coming back. And he's going to whisk us, carry us, catch us up, and carry us over into the real ultimate promised land, heaven, where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sin, no more devil, no more flesh, where we are truly free indeed. Can we thank the Lord for that tonight? So Moses was a type of Christ. And what he did and how he did it was a picture of Christ who was to come. Now, look what it says. Jesus is going to lead us into the promised land, heaven, the home of the redeemed. And the second half of verse 6 says, whose house we are. I want you to say, I'm, I'm part of his house. Whose house we are. What house? The church. Whose house we are. Not just the collective church, but you are his house. I am his house. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. We have been brought, bought with a price. Therefore, we are told to glorify God in our bodies because they are God's and not ours. Your body is not yours. It's God's. Amen? Because he purchased it with his blood. And so whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now, some people stumble over that if. Some people interpret this verse to suggest that you can lose your salvation if, if you don't hold fast your profession to the end. But I believe it actually means that if you are truly saved, you will persevere to the end. You will persevere to the end if you are truly saved. I believe with all of my heart, if you're really his, 
you will persevere to the end because saving faith is staying faith. Can I say that again? Saving faith is staying faith. See, why in the world would God look at me and say, okay, your whole salvation was all of me and none of you. Now it's up to you to keep it. Uh, If I believed that, I'd be neurotic every day if it was up to me to keep my salvation intact, all right? Now, yes, we should obey God. Yes, we should walk with him. Yes, we should honor him. But has anybody made a mistake yet in the year 2020? Has anybody sinned yet? Has anybody needed forgiveness? Come on, let me see your hands. If you and the rest of you need it right now, because you just told a story, we've all needed it. How many of you can say pretty much every day I need forgiveness for something? I say something, think something, do something. Come on. Can we be transparent here tonight? Y'all have got your halos over your head, and they're rusty, let me tell you. No, see, here's the truth. In Christ, I am perfect, I am sinless, and I am right where he was, in Christ. That is, in the blood, covered in the blood. When God looks at me, he sees no sin. That's my positional truth. But my experiential truth, everybody say positional. Positional truth is who you are in Christ right now because of the blood and you don't have to do anything. It's who you are in Christ. You are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a called out people. You are redeemed. You are heaven bound. When God looks at you, he does not see your sin because he looks at you through the eyes of the blood. But experiential truth is my spiritual growth. It is my everyday walk with God where I stumble sometimes, skin my knees sometimes, make mistakes sometimes, don't live up to the, the, the maturity or, or, or the, the level that I wish that I did or the word of God calls me to. And, and, and so I need to ask forgiveness, 1 John 1, 9. If we uh, confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so my, my, my daily walk with God, my experiential walk with God, I'm not perfect. But because of my positional truth in God, I am perfect. So while I'm learning how to walk with God and I'm making my mistakes and doing some, you know, falling and like I said, skinning my knees a little bit, and whatever it is where we're not you know, living up perfectly to the ideal. His blood cleanses me of all sin. So while God sees no sin, I'm also growing spiritually into the fullness of the stature of Christ. So there's two truths in every Christian's life, positional truth and experiential truth. And a lot of people say, well, because my experiential truth, my experiential walk is not what it ought to be, then I must have lost my salvation. No, you have not lost your salvation because your positional truth is you are forgiven, you are born again, you're redeemed, and Jesus said, no man plucks them out of my hand. But in my daily experience, how many of you can say in my daily walk with God, I make my mistakes? Amen? And that's all a part of growing up in him and spiritual growth and doing better, and hopefully as the years go by, we're more and more like him, Walking in love, walking in joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith. And we're growing in him. Amen? So everybody say positional and experiential. 
So don't let your experiential knock you off the saddle of your positional truth. Amen? And so if you're truly saved, I believe, you're going to persevere to the end. This is called, in theology, the perseverance of the saints. And if you aren't truly saved, only uh, then can you renounce what you once learned about Christ, but having never truly been born again. I, listen, I've walked with God a long, long time. Um, I started really walking close when I was 18 years old. And in all those years, decades, I've seen a tiny, not even hardly five fingers on my hand, five people maybe, who I was around, who professed Christ and it looked like they were all in and they ended up apostatizing and walking away and renouncing him. I've seen it happen so rarely. Now, have I seen people backslide by the droves? Oh, yes. Have I seen God whoop them in his woodshed? Oh, yes. Have I seen them come back? Oh, yes. Have I seen people, and have I made my own mistakes? Oh, yes. But the bottom line is, if you're truly saved, truly born again, the Lord stays with you. If you start messing up and drifting from him, he says he's going to chasten you. You're not condemned with the world, but he chastens you so you won't be condemned with the world. So God God does. He takes you to a woodshed, and the woodshed is usually custom designed just for you. Ask Jonah, who, who, who got swallowed by the great fish. The Bible never says it was a whale. It calls it a great fish. That fish, it says God prepared the great fish. So that great fish was custom designed for his runaway servant, and it swallowed him whole. We can't imagine the smell. We can't imagine the environment. We can't imagine the torture. No wonder he repented in the belly of that whale and that, or great fish. And that great fish got real close to shore, and it says it vomited him out. That means some other things came with him. And when he hit that shore, let me tell you something. He wasn't saying, well, I don't know if I'm going to obey God or not. Oh, no, no. He was probably half bleached white from that stomach acid and that great fish's belly. And he made a beeline for Nineveh and preached the word like a wild man because he says, listen, I've learned my lesson. If God wants you to do something, he's going to be sure you do it. If you're his, custom design woodsheds. Oh, yeah, whatever reaches you best, that's what he will prepare for you if you walk away. Now, I like to say this, faith that fizzles at the finish was faulty at the first. I believe that with all of my heart. Faith that fizzles at the finish was faulty at the first. So if somebody walks away who we thought was really in Christ and so on and so forth, and they renounce him, they say, I don't believe him anymore. I don't believe in God anymore. I renounce Christianity and all the, that foolishness I was involved in. And I want nothing to do with him. I contend their faith was faulty at the first. Now remember, one main motive of the writer is to address the Jews that were considering forsaking the old covenant under Moses in order to come to Christ. And so the writer of the Hebrews, who I think was Paul, keeps on saying, don't go back to the Mosaic religious system. 
that has been replaced by the new covenant under Christ. Don't go back. Don't go back. No matter how much we're persecuted, how hot the trials are, no matter how difficult this thing becomes, don't go back. And for us, the message would be, don't go back to your old life. Don't go back to the world. Don't go back to to the life you had before Christ. Don't go back. Can I tell you, if you do, there's nothing there. There is nothing there. Ask Peter. After Peter denied Christ, he said, I'm going fishing. What did that mean? I'm going back to my old life. I've blown it. Clearly, my call of God, call from God is over with. I, I, I denied the Lord. I did it three times. I failed him miserably in front of everybody, in front of John, in front of my uh, other disciple compadres. And so now I'm just going to go back to fishing. And I don't think the Bible makes any mistakes. It says, all that night he was fishing, he caught how much? Nothing. He caught nothing. You know what you'll catch if you go back to your old life? Say it with me. Nothing. If you go try to find some, listen, God closed the Red Sea over the enemy. And what was God saying? I got you to the other side. You ain't going back. And in a a spiritual sense, I guarantee you, what we used to be able to get out of the world, if, if anything, what fun we thought we were having, the friends, the parties, so on and so forth. It's not the same once you're a born-again child of God. You can't go back the way you were because you're not the way you were. You are a brand-new person in Christ, so you can't go back. I want you to say with me, I can't go back because there's nothing back there. Ask the prodigal son. He went off to the far country, and what did he get? Well, he, had, uh, he partied hardy for a few weeks, but then when all of his money was gone, so were the friends. And then he ended up working for a pig farmer, And then he ended up eating pig food. And what did he start thinking? It was better in my father's house than here. And if I were even a servant in his house, I'd be better off than here working for a pig farmer eating pig food. And that's also a picture of what the world offers you and me. Whatever you think you're going to feed on in that world, can I tell you, it's pig food. It's pig food compared to the heavenly manna that comes to us from God and the word of God that is sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So the, the, the writer is over and over again saying, don't go back, you Jews, you Jewish people, my brethren in the flesh, don't go back to Moses. Now in verse 7, he quotes the Psalms 95. He's quoting the Psalms. Psalm 95, 7 to 11, to warn them of the folly of going back. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial, in the wilderness. Today, when you hear God's voice, church, I can't tell you how important it is when we hear God's voice, when we hear that gospel for the first time, when God begins to deal with us about something and we hear God's voice, repent, turn, do this, go there, obey me in this, that, or the other. When we hear God's voice, look what happens if you turn his voice away. Your heart hardens. Everybody say a hard heart. Now, follow the, the, the pattern of thinking here because this is the Holy Ghost giving us these words. 
Don't harden your hearts like they did in the wilderness when they rebelled against God. And I want to point out, notice how the writer attributes the psalm to the Holy Spirit. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, then he quotes the psalm. I'm always telling you that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means the Holy Spirit breathed out the words that are in our Holy Bible. And here the writer says it was the Holy Ghost behind this psalm. And what did he say? When you hear the word of God, don't stop up your ears because when you do and you turn away from what he's trying to tell you, your heart's gonna start to get hard. The writer is saying when we hear God's voice, and I believe it begins with the call to salvation, we're not to harden our hearts to the call. We're not to resist his grace when it's extended to us. Hebrews later is going to say, don't frustrate the grace of God. Don't resist the grace of God. Because this is how Israel behaved in the wilderness, which the writer calls the rebellion. Not just a rebellion, but the rebellion. This was a rebellion for the books. Over and over again, Israel refused to believe God, obey God, and trust God. And the writer goes on to describe their rebellion. Look what he says in verse 9. Where, where your fathers tested me, they tried me, and they saw my works for 40 years. You get the picture here of here's Israel in the wilderness, and, and they're in conflict with God. God is saying, hey, I'm going to take care of you. Just trust me for your water. Trust me for your food. Trust me for your clothes. Trust me for your shelter. That's all I ask you to do. You know what God was trying to get them to do in the wilderness? One simple thing. Trust me. Just trust me. Trust me. And, and yet, they didn't. And so, they, they tested God. They, they grieved God. He says, you tried me, you tested me, even though I kept showing you my works. For 40 years, I showed you my works, and you kept on, kept on, keeping on, refusing to obey me. And then the writer goes on to describe it further. He said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they will not enter into my rest. Now, these are serious words here. And I want us to catch this. Because remember when Paul wrote in Corinthians, he said, these things were written. These Old Testament narratives, these Old Testament historical accounts were written by the Holy Spirit to warn us in New Testament times that we would not make the same mistakes, that we would not do the same thing. So how many of you can say, I don't want to test God. And and I don't want to try him. And I don't want to grieve him. Amen? Israel rebelled so long that God finally said, that's it. You won't enter into my rest. Now, what was the rest? The rest he speaks of was Canaan, the promised land. That was the rest God had for them. It was called the land flowing with milk and honey. There were grapes as big as basketballs. It was a land flowing with milk and honey and beauty and lush green meadows and flowing brooks and streams. And and for them, compared to Egypt where they were tortured, where they were in slavery, where they could hardly uh, uh, um, 
had time to eat, where they weren't having to make bricks, and their lives were sheer misery. And they finally cried out to God so repeatedly that God finally sent Moses to deliver them. And it says, I have seen the suffering of my people. Compared to Egypt, the promised land was a land of rest, a land of beauty. But God said, for 40 years, you've been testing me. For 40 years, you've been trying me. And there was a line in the sand, folks, when God finally said, that's it. You've complained the last time. You've disobeyed me the last time. I now see you're never going to turn to me. You're never going to believe me or trust me. So this is it. And he said, you're not going to enter into the promised land. Now, I want you to think about this. This is so powerful because for 40 years, they've been traveling through the promise or through the wilderness. And, and the wilderness was tough. It was rough. It was difficult. And, and so here they are traveling for 40 years. And then at the very end, God said, you can't go over. Why? Because they disobeyed God. And they refused to simply trust him. And it all came to a head when the spies came back from spying out the promised land. And they brought a report. They said, indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey, and here's some of the grapes. But oh, the giants that are there. And fear fell upon the people. And they yielded to the doubt of fear rather than the promise of faith. And when they said, we're not going to cross over, God's trying to kill us, and they went into their same old line, then God said, that's it. You will die here. And for 40 more years, that first generation died off man by man, woman by woman, until there were only two left, Joshua and Caleb. And don't you know, when those last few were dying, they were walking around them, come on, I want to go into the promised land. I'm ready to go. Come on, kick the bucket. Because I didn't bring back a bad report. You did. I'm crossing over. Come on, come on, come on, breathe your last. Because as soon as the last one died, God raised up the next generation and said, you're the ones going over. Amen? Amen. And so it goes on. For us, the promised land is a type of heaven. And heaven is the promised land promised to all those that place their faith in Christ. And Jesus promised, I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. Isn't that beautiful? And the message of the writer is this. Just like Moses with the children of Israel, if somebody hardens his heart to the gospel message, they will never enter the rest called heaven. As that first generation didn't go over into their place of rest, Anybody who rejects the gospel message and shuts off the call of God will never enter into the promised land called heaven. That's a sobering thought. He continues with further warning. Beware, brethren, beware. Here he goes again. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Don't you dare go back to the world. Don't you dare go back. Don't you dare go back to Moses. Don't you dare go back to your past. Faith's favorite word is forward. Fear's favorite word is backward. How many of you want to go forward in the things of God? Come on, give him a hand tonight. Amen. Now notice he says, he says, when you go back, when you depart from God with an evil heart of unbelief, he calls it evil, evil. He again is warning the Jews that were so acclimated to the Mosaic Old Covenant 
that they would be tempted during great persecution and trials to apostatize and depart from the true faith found in Christ. And he next gives a remedy. And here's where the church comes in. Now he's talking to new covenant people. And he says, let me give you a remedy for ever drifting away and going back to your old life. Here it is, verse 13. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. One of the great reasons for the church is to provide a setting, a context, for continual encouragement and exhortation that we would all continue in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. That ought to be happening on Sunday morning. How you doing in your walk, brother? How you doing in your walk, sister? Well, I'm kind of struggling. Well, listen, let me encourage you. God's going to answer your prayers. God's going to carry you through this. You're going to make it to the other side. Don't faint. Don't give up. God is faithful and encourage them in God. Because it's when we begin to sin a little here and sin a little there, it happens very incrementally, generally, in the life of a child of God. Because the devil knows he's not going to take us down overnight. So we get in a little compromise here, a little compromise there. And we begin to cut corners here and, and uh, oh, give in a little bit there. And as we give in to a little bit here and there and walk in more and more compromise, our hearts begin to harden. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Because sin is deceitful. He wants us to know that sin is deceitful in the way it promises you what it can't deliver. There's always a promise that comes before sin, or it would never be a temptation. See, when I'm fishing and I throw a lure out there, my job as a fisherman is to convince that fish that bait is real. So I've got to make it look real. So I'll flick it a little bit, walk that worm across the bottom of the lake real slow, shake it a little bit, Make it look like it's down there and it's alive and it's real. Because I want that fish to finally believe that my lie is true. So that, so that when that fish decides to go for it and commit and bites it, I've got a plan for him. I'm going to yank that rod and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set that hook and I'm going to bring him into my boat. And I intend to fillet him and destroy him and take away the life he knew. The devil is no different. He puts something right in front of your eyes. And and eventually, he wants to eventually convince you it's true, it's good, it's right. And then when you finally bite it, he sets the hook and you're hooked. And he's got a plan for you to bring you into his boat and fillet you and ruin you and deplete you and destroy you so that you become his meal and you've lost the life you had. So he says here, be careful that you don't get deceived by the deceitfulness of sin when it promises you this is going to make you happy, this is going to fulfill you, this is going to bless you, this is going to be an addition, a positive to your life, and he knows good and well there's a hook in it, and he wants to take you down, and your heart gets hard. Finally, you're not sensitive anymore to the things of God. So he says, be careful of that. Don't let that happen. Don't go back to your old life. Don't compromise your convictions and your faith. And he next encourages us to be steadfast in our confession to the end as we come to the end of the chapter. He says, for we have become partakers of Christ 
if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the when? To the end. The end of what? The end of our life or until Christ comes. Now, look what he says, if we hold. The word hold means that we are to take a firm stand when we're attacked. Hold firm when you're attacked. Stand firmly under whatever pressure comes your way. Keep a tight grip on your faith and on your profession till the day we see his face or the the day you die. No matter what you go through, hold fast. Can we say that together tonight? Hold fast. Let's try it like we really believe it. Hold fast. We will be partakers of Christ, his blessing, his peace, everything he brings into our life. If we hold fast, walk with him, talk with him, fellowship with him, meet with him on a daily basis, abide in the vine, attach yourself to the vine, draw from the sustenance of the vine, bear the fruit of the vine. And at the end of the chapter, he once again, to be sure we get it, he goes back to 95, Psalms 95 verse 7. And he quotes it again in verse 15. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That's a repeat. The phrase, while it is said today, means as long as you're alive. Don't harden your heart to God's voice. And he points again to Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. We got three verses left. For who having heard, rebelled, That's Israel in the wilderness. When they heard, they rebelled. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt? Think about that. All who came out of Egypt after watching 10 incredible miracles, every one of them rebelled. Every one of God's people so mightily delivered by God's miracles from slavery turned their hearts away from him and rebelled against his voice. And look at the consequences. Verse 17 Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell? That's a dread thought, isn't it? Whose corpses fell in the wilderness? Folks, it was their unbelief that brought about their loss of everything, even their very lives. Not only did they forfeit their incredible calling to enter the promised land, but they died in the wilderness where just across yonder river, they could see the promised land. They could see it, but not touch it. They could see it, but not walk across it. Why? Because of their evil hearts of unbelief. And to whom did God swear, verse 18, that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey. So we see they could not enter in because of their their unbelief. They couldn't enter in because of unbelief. Look at the terrible things that unbelief can bring to us. God finally reached the place where he said, you're not going to cross over. So where faith carries us into God's promises, unbelief robs them from us. So let me ask you tonight, what are you believing God for? What are you believing God for? I know some things I'm believing God for. What are you believing God for? What are you going to do about that belief until it becomes a reality? How are you going to walk with it? How are you going to handle it? You only have two choices. 
you can stay in the word of God every day, build your faith by reading the scriptures, because faith comes by hearing the word of God. So every day you ought to be in the word. Can I say that boldly tonight? I mean, we can't afford to not be in the word every day. You say, well, Pastor Jeff, that's kind of fanatical. No, let me tell you what's fanatical. When you put cheese on your head and paint your skin green and take off your shirt in sub-zero weather and scream for a football team to carry pigskin from one side of a field to another, that's fanatical, <laughs> right? But here's what's normal Christianity. When you say, you know what? There's some things I believe in God for. So I'm going to get into the word of God every day. I'm going to feed on that good manna. I'm going to build my faith so that my faith is red hot. I'm not giving up. I'm not going to walk away. I'm not going back to Egypt. I'm not going back to my old life. I'm not going back to any of that, but I'm going forward, onward, and upward. I'm going to feed my inner man every day. I'm going to grow in grace and in the knowledge of my Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. And in due season, I will reap. If I faint not, can we stand together tonight? Amen. I'll tell you, I could preach right now. That just got me going and I'm done. Amen. So let's lift holy hands to the Lord on this cold night and just say, Lord, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Come on, praise him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Come on, let's have a praise, a praise moment. Let's just praise him. Go ahead and praise him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We praise you tonight, Lord. We praise you for faith. We praise you for the promises of God. We praise you for these warnings not to go back to the old life, to the old way, but to believe you to carry us from glory to glory and faith to faith and from one level to the next level to the next level, from victory to victory. In the mighty name of the Lamb of God, Lord, help us to hang tough and to hold on tight to the promise and the promiser. In the mighty name of Jesus, let's worship him for a moment before we go. Yes, Lord. Come on, everybody. Praise him. Yes. So it's so good to see all of you here tonight. Listen, God's been moving on Sundays. We've been having such wonderful altar calls after all the services. I mean, people have been filling this altar, being touched by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God has been really moving, particularly, well, all through the service, but at the end, many people being touched and saved and delivered and, and all kinds of really, really strong stuff. So bring somebody who needs Jesus. Amen. 
I mean, we can easily say, hey, my church is not like what you're used to. I think you're going to like my church. I mean, what do you do when you go to a good restaurant? Man, I was at a great restaurant just recently. I don't know about you, but I love breakfast. I just do. And this restaurant that I was taken to, uh, Cindy and I were taken to, um, it was incredible. And you know what I found myself doing all week? Telling others about it. Telling others about it. Isn't that true? Tell others about it. And so if you're eating at a good restaurant, don't keep it to yourself. Don't hoard the food. Go out and tell somebody about it. Amen? Because they need it too. Be evangelistic about Jesus and your church. Amen? Brian, good to see you tonight. He slips in. Come here, Brian, real quick. Get, grab me a microphone. Brian is a pastor here in town, and, and uh, he'll, sl- he'll do his Wednesday night. Then he comes over here for the close of ours and encourages me. I'm serious. That's what I'm Isn't supposed right? to do. Yes, sir. I'm back there in the back looking at the monitor and, and making sure you look good and the streaming's good. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> and whoever's dressing you is doing a really good job. So I just, uh, no, I really believe in you, Pastor Jeff. And I think that this year, 2020, is your greatest year yet. Amen. And I want to encourage you as a church family. Yes, amen. That... Um, as a matter of fact, I came over to tell you, and I've been listening to the radio broadcast, the new improved radio broadcast, yeah. and I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, that is the best broadcast I've ever heard this man produce. Yeah. The, the quality, the, the presentation is outstanding. As a matter of fact, the, the one I just heard yesterday was actually a service I was here for a Wednesday night, yeah. Yeah. and uh, teaching on the gifts of the Spirit. Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, I really believe what Pastor Jeff has in his heart is not just something that we need, but the people out there need. And I deeply appreciate you rallying behind this cause to get this message out because we have a lot of people here in Johnson County and around the world that need to hear what this man's saying. And I'm honored to be a part Thank of it. Thank you, Brian. I'll give you your $100 bill back there. Okay. All right. Now, Brian's What's the name of your church, Brian? Pathway. Metroplex Family Church. I should know that. Pathway is another one. Metroplex Family Church. He's, he's a wonderful man. He really does. He'll come blowing in here on Wednesday nights, come straight up to me and encourage me. Now, how many pastors do that? Okay. All right. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this precious people. Guide us safely home in this weather. We pray for your touch, your protection, your angels. Thank you for spiritual growth. Thank you, Lord, that we have made up our minds to go forward with Jesus to the very end. Thank you, Lord, for the high call of God in Jesus Christ. Bless us with your favor. Thank you for blessing this church with favor. Amen. God bless you as you go. Hang around and fellowship some. We'll see you Sunday. God bless.